Welcome to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. In this podcast, financial planner Peter Raskin helps families and business owners understand and prepare for their wealth journey. Along the way, thoughtful and detailed planning can provide clarity and confidence as clients confront a multitude of financial decisions. Listen in as Peter shares stories and insight into people's wealth journeys. Now, let's get into today's podcast. Hello and welcome to Wealth is in the Details with Peter Raskin from Raskin Planning Group. Today, we've got a special guest in studio, and that is Dean Mioli. And Dean is an SEI Private Trust Company's Director of Investment Planning. Welcome, Dean. Thank you. Hey, can you tell the audience and myself, actually, about SEI and what you do there? Well, my position here at SEI is that I function as a trust investment officer and also as a, an advisor to advisors on tax matters, financial planning, and investment planning. All right, fantastic. And today's topic is focused on trust and trustee planning. And uh, that's why exactly why you're the special guest here. And, and Peter, the title is Trust is About Certainty and Love. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure, I'd love to, Eric. When I, when I think about trust, I think, it, I think about the definition. And, and let me just read the definition. It's defined as reliance on the integrity, strength, ability, surety, et cetera, of a person or thing. And when I read that, I, I think what, what, it, what it tells me is what, I'm, what we're looking for is confidence. And when I think about the use of trust in estate planning, I think about the certainty of an outcome. Trusts are utilized because the person who's establishing the trust wants to be certain. They want to be confident of an outcome sometime in the future. And I think it's really important to stress that, that I think that's very different than lack of trust. And in my opinion, a, a family establishes a trust because they want to be certain of an outcome, not because there's a lack of trust. I believe the primary motivation for establish, establishing a trust is because of love. So it, it, with that in mind, let, let me share some conversations I've had recently with, with clients. Just as, as one example, Harvey and Beth Bishop, they have two young kids. If they both die tomorrow, they leave the kids almost $3 million, which also includes their, their life insurance and the value of all their assets. And at this point in time, they just don't feel comfortable giving an 18-year-old, because that's what would happen if they, if they die and, and leave their, their assets directly to their, their, their children without a trust. They don't feel comfortable giving an 18-year-old a million and a half dollars without any control or counsel. So the question that, you know, what happens if the child gets married and, and then becomes divorced? Will, will the inheritance become a marital asset? And will the ex get half of that inheritance? These are real questions that clients have. What happens when Harvey or Beth dies and, and the surviving spouse remarries and then dies, leaving the entire estate to the new husband or wife? Well, will Harvey and Beth's kids be disinherited? Again, real question. Another example, one of the kids has special needs and, and might need extra financial support during lifetime. How can, how can Harvey and Beth guarantee that these funds are going to be available for this child forever? Peter, in previous podcasts, you've talked about the process of really understanding your clients' objectives and goals. Obviously, 
the story you just described, that's something that you're finding out. You're, you're sitting down and, and really having these conversations. And these conversations are obviously uh, way more than just about money. They, they certainly are, Eric. This is a whole process of comprehensive financial planning. It's us really understanding what's, in, what's most important to, to, the, to the client. And that's more often than not the, their loved ones. Well, that sounds to me that's exactly why you brought Dean on the show today. And uh, I'm going to let you get to it because I'm ready to learn and I know the audience is ready to hear you guys. Thanks, Eric. Appreciate it. So, so Dean, um, thanks for joining us today. It's really a pleasure. We've worked together over the years and you are such a great resource to, to, to me and to our clients. So let's just start off with the basics. What's a trust? Well, uh, a trust is a legal entity, generally has its own tax ID number, and it is a financial planning tool where someone, let's say, such as myself, wants to help out other family members and wants to make sure that uh, the administration, when I'm not around, potentially will be handled in a fiduciary manner. And really, when you talk about trust, the, the word fiduciary are almost go hand in hand, where a fiduciary acts in the, the benefit of, of the beneficiaries of the trust. So they're always putting the beneficiaries first in a, in a trust situation, which is very critical. So it's not self-serving. It's not self-dealing. Uh, a, a trust is a very uh, special arrangement. You typically have uh, three parties to a trust. You have uh, someone known as the grantor or the settler who establishes the trust. You have your trustee or trustees who will uh, administer the trust. And then you have the beneficiaries of the trust. So there's three important parties to a trust. Certainly, there can be situations where the grantor and, and the trustee are one and the same. Uh, a revocable trust would come into mind there. But typically, uh, the grantor, the trustee, and the beneficiary will be different people. And there's lots of reasons to consider a trust, as you were talking about, Peter. Uh, one, certainly, uh, it's not all about money. There's a lot of psychological reasons why someone might want to establish a trust. I call it the sleep at night test. Where uh, Am I confident about the future and that things are going to go the way I want them to go when I'm not here? And certainly there's a financial aspect to it. But more importantly, I think sometimes the psychological aspect can be huge. Uh, you had mentioned about uh, making sure uh, children have some protection with these assets. So we call it predator and creditor protection, where trust can be set up to provide some of that so that there isn't a, for instance, a uh, gold digger situation. And also the loved ones that you're trying to take care of might not be financially astute. And since there's generally assets in these trusts, what we're trying to do is provide is alleviate them of that burden and bring in professional money managers, professional advisors to make sure things are going to be invested properly and the beneficiaries will be taken care of for a long time. Dean, can you talk about some other areas of concern, just general things that uh, a, a, a grantor, the person setting up the trust, might be concerned about and uh, want to uh, protect their beneficiaries? Sure. Uh, well, one thing, when you set, establish a trust uh, and you pass on, uh, a trust is not part of probate, so it's a separate situation. It will not be in your will. 
Uh, it won't be a, a public situation. It's a private situation. Some people really uh, want that privacy that trust can provide. There's certainly all types of beneficiaries could be taken, taken care of here. For instance, uh, we happen to do a lot of charitable trust planning here at SCI where, where people are looking to uh, potentially mitigate a big tax bill. They may have sold something that has generated a big tax bill or they have something that's appreciated rather greatly and now they're looking to sell it. But how do we sell it and also generate some tax savings and at the same time uh, fulfill some charitable intent, whether it be current or somewhere later in the future. So trusts can be really tailored to many types of client situations, and they can provide uh, the legal structure, the financial and professional management, and also the psychological aspect of taking care of, of your family. Yeah, I also see it in, in situations where we, we've got clients that have uh, significant assets. They may want to establish trust in order to take advantage of certain uh, federal or state exemptions that might be available to them at the, at the time of their death. So tax planning is, is often used, but it's not really the only area of concern, at least that I hear. I think you're right. It's really all about those psychological interests and concerns that the clients have. Yeah. I mean, right now, when you look at the federal and the state gift law, each U.S. citizen has $11.4 million exemption. So a husband and wife have, at a federal level, $22.8 million federal and estate gift tax exemption, which almost all Americans are going to fall under. There's not that many people in the United States that have greater estates greater than $22 million. Now, certainly you have to think about state estate tax because many states have decoupled from the federal tax law. So when you're doing this planning, even though there are some tax ramifications, it's usually not going to involve federal gift and estate tax as it is today. Now, current law is set to expire after 2025, and we go back to the 2017 exemption amount, which we approximate to be about $6 million per person. So go ahead, Peter. No, I was going to ask... Um... What about the, the ramifications of establishing and maintaining these kinds of trusts? Well, that, that's a great point when establishing a trust because I will use one word, and I mean this is so important, is your documents need to be flexible because what we have seen is, is that tax law can be very volatile. And in recent history would totally support this position. And even on looking forward a little bit, uh, we do have an election next year, and the candidates are quite different on how they see both income and estate tax going. So, for instance, uh, in the recent past, the, there was a type of structure for a married couple to do was known as a, a marital and credit shelter trust. Whereas uh, upon uh, the husband's death, two trusts would be established. Uh, one would be for the, the benefit of his spouse. The second would be the benefit of, let's say, children. That would be the credit shelter trust. And many documents would say, fill the credit shelter trust with the maximum federal estate exemption amount that, that I have left. Well, that, well, that may have been written when the 
uh, estate exemption amount was, or the federal estate exemption amount was, let's say, uh, $3 million. Now it's 11 million, 0.4. So if you read that document and it's based on like this formula or, or it states something very general like that, all of a sudden 11 0.4 million, if they had that much in their estate, would go into this credit shelter trust and there might not be anything left over for the marital trust. So when, when documents are being drafted in the trust space, it's very important that you review the anytime things that are formulaic in nature. And two, uh, trusts sometimes need to be redone based on circumstances as people's lives change. They could be married, as you mentioned, remarried, uh, Different children could come into play, whether they're a first or second marriage. So uh, it's a very important that as a regular rule that documents should be reviewed on a regular basis. Anytime there's a tax law change, they certainly should be reviewed. And then over uh, life-changing events, documents should be reviewed. Yeah, I think, I think one of the things I keep on stressing to my clients is that trust can be written flexibly and where they can make adjustments to the circumstances of the family over time. And that is just so vital because you just don't want, families don't want to be locked into the specifications of a trust for, it could be generations. And that, that can be um, disheartening to say the least. And that's, that, that brings me to the next question is, what's the typical length of a trust? How, how long does it exist in what are some of the advantages and disadvantages of having a trust last a long time or a short period of time? Yeah, when thinking about trust design, that's you're certainly looking at you know when it should be established and when it may no longer be necessary. Uh, there are some types of trust that are what we call in perpetuity. It's known as a dynasty trust. So there could be some family assets that that want to be in the family forever. Let's say it's a vacation home, for instance, and. Uh, the family wants to keep it essentially in the family for who knows, 100 years, 150 years, maybe longer. Uh, there's certain trusts out there that can hold such an asset and, and maintain an asset for that kind of time. Many trusts are going to be expire potentially on uh, the death of the beneficiaries. So I established a trust for my, my son. Upon my death, he is uh, the beneficiary of that trust, and I might put something in there that says hey, when he passes on, it's to his kids if he has any. So, uh, or the the trustee has the uh, at that point has the uh, authority to end the trust and and just pay out the trust to my son's kids. So, things like that need to be contemplated as to uh, when they should uh, no longer need be needed. Uh, you mentioned earlier in your situation with your client that someone at the age of 18 would, could potentially inherit uh, quite a bit of sum. So they might think, well, when, when would be a good age, a mature age for this person who's 18 now to say, take those assets over completely? And you might comment and say, in reasons, well, when he's 35, we feel as though he'll function as adult. So the, the trust will end upon his 35th birthday. And then the trust would release those assets to his uh, total control. So things like that can be built into a document, but typically trusts do have a, a finite life and it's usually going to be based on uh, usually human lives uh, come into play as to certain people living. And then when they pass on, uh, the trusts tend to dissolve and, and move on uh, to sure. the next generation. I, I, I have uh, often spoken to, to parents of, uh, of 
of children where uh, they they drafted trust a long, long time ago. Their kids are now 25, 30 years old, and, and they want to distribute assets. The trust reads that, that assets are dis- distributed at that age. And I find that the parents are, are not all the time, but oftentimes extending the, <laughs> that age out into the future. So uh, it depends upon the, the family and, and, the, uh, and the child. That's for right. certain. Exactly, and, and when in the grander when he sets his or her when he's setting up a trust, uh, you know that this is really why it's important to get very explicit instructions inside a trust document to a trustee because the trustee is looking for guidance here. They're trying to do what you fulfill your 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 plans as the grantor. So you the better you can lay out how you want to see things go, then it makes it easier for the trustee to make those, let's say, what I call a discretionary disbursement. Most trustees are say, well, pay out income of the trust each year to the beneficiary. Why? Normally, it's because there's going to be a big differential between trust tax rates and individual tax rates. Trust tax rates are very compressed. So uh, 99% of the time, it's probably better to distribute income out to the, to the beneficiary. But then it could also be a situation where the a uh, trustee will have ability to make what's known as a discretionary disbursement. And it's important that that be laid out. Could it be for marriages, education, uh, but buying a house, uh, or, or, or giving the, the, the trustee the, the idea that when he feels as though that the uh, beneficiary is uh, capable of uh, managing uh, those assets on their own, that they can make a final disbursement and then the trust. Dean, do you find that it's it, it, that that many of the the documents that you read, the trust documents, are going to be very explicit, or do you see that the trustees will look at maybe uh, in letters of intention from a grantor? Do you see both ways? What, what, what's your what's your sense there? Uh, my my sense is is that most times these things aren't thought about heavily enough that the trustee is not given enough guidance in what should be done. I, I think great, great. It would be great if letters of intent were shared with a trustee uh, and spelled out real clear. I think there's a clarity issue with many of these trust documents that things aren't necessarily contemplated all that well sometimes. And it makes very makes it very difficult for a trustee. Yeah. So I, I like I, I like the idea of, of, of for a grantor to be explicit about the the family values within this letter of intent, and and you know because life over a long period of time is just so uncertain, and we don't know what what will come about. But I think it gives uh, the trustees a sense of what's most important to, to the family. Dean, could you could you describe in general just some some of the, the other trust terms? And here I'm thinking about. Uh, what the, the difference between a revocable and an irrevocable trust, a disinterested trustee, and, and then talk a little about the, the, the standards for making distributions. Sure. Well, a common type of trust is a known as a revocable trust. And it's, it's essentially like owning things in your own name, but instead of saying Dean Mioli, it says Dean Mioli Revocable Trust. It'll be my social security number will be the tax ID number. And it's a way to organize your life. You put everything 
that you own inside this trust. Your home, all your bank accounts, your investment accounts, uh, everything is named into the revocable trust. Upon your death, it then turns into an irrevocable trust because the only person who could change it while you were alive was me and I died. So uh, there's no more changing it uh, and it becomes irrevocable. At that point, uh, the trust document would take over as to uh, how my estate would be handled. It would say so-and-so is going to get this and so-and-so is going to get that. It may actually bring into another type of trust or multiple trusts, depending on the situation. So it's a very common technique to use these revocable trusts. Uh, and, of course, the transition to irrevocable is typically at, at death. Now, many trusts are also established at death. So you have, you could say a, a revocable trust is uh, an irvivos trust while you're alive, Latin term. And then uh, a, a trust that's established at death would be known as a testamentary trust. So it could be established by will, could be established by using this uh, revocable trust. And of course, uh, the testamentary is a, is a form of irrevocable trust. And we see quite a few of those where people will transfer assets into a trust. Uh, it's essentially a gift to a, a legal entity, this, the Demioli Trust. I'm, I was the grantor of that trust, but I don't have all the, I can't necessarily pull that money back. It's, it's kind of a one-way street because when you give a gift, it, it's not supposed to be, have any strings attached to it. You can kind of direct some things, but you certainly aren't going to get that, those assets back. Getting to a trustee, this is a touchy subject because a lot of times people feel as, oh, I'll name my brother or my sister to be trustee. And that is not an easy situation when it comes to family dynamics because you might have a very harmonious family, but all of a sudden now you control the purse strings for other family members. Things can get quite contentious. Also, uh, they may never have been trustee before, so they have no experience on being a trustee. What are my fiduciary duties? How am I supposed to act? I'm not familiar with trust taxation. Now I'm going to have to go out and hire uh, a CPA or someone to prepare the returns and handle uh, possibly other functions. So I've just recently had a case now where uh, someone had passed and the uncle uh, was the trustee and he cannot wait to get out of being trustee. And they're looking for us uh, to function as a trustee or at the very least a co-trustee to take over the burden of filing tax returns, uh, handling distributions, kind of refereeing uh, the family dynamics. So that's where uh, someone like a corporate trustee can be very helpful uh, in this situation where family members are inexperienced, don't really want to do it, or just kind of, they might have even known they were trustee. They were just named in a document 20 years ago, and all of a sudden they're trustee. I'm like, huh, what? I don't know how to do that. I don't want to do that. So bringing in someone who knows what they're doing, has done it before, experienced, can provide wisdom, can provide that, uh, let's say, referee type of attitude where we're not going to discriminate against anyone that's a beneficiary. Because you, when you're a trustee, you have to look at all beneficiaries equally. So you have to take in that into consideration. You have to act in a fiduciary manner, which is a very high standard. Always looking out for the benefit of the beneficiaries, not yourself. Putting them first. And of course, when you're making distributions, uh, we have a thing in the trust world called, I'll use the acronym first, HEMS, which stands for Health, Education, Maintenance, and Support. As I mentioned earlier, 
you know, husband dies and leaves a, a trust for the benefit his, of his, his parent wife, but he has kids from another marriage. So he sets up this, what's known as a Q-tip trust, qualified terminal interest property. And uh, the current wife would have, we would have, let's say, this HEMS provision in there. So the wife, current wife can get money for health, education, maintenance, and support. But upon her death, the assets would go to, let's say, kids from a prior marriage or something like this. So that, again, gives the, the, the trustee uh, the standard on how to make distributions to uh, the current spouse. I, th- I think the message to, to this is that being a trustee can be complicated. There are lots of uh, rules and, and requirements and, and standards that need to be met. And I think families need to really consider, do they, do they want the family member or the friend or uh, the uncle, the aunt, uh, to be just there to, to provide that kind of support? Or do they want them to be rolling up their sleeves and to, and to control the purse? And, and I think oftentimes the honest answer is that the, that uncle, that friend, doesn't necessarily want to play that role. They don't have the experience or the expertise to do it, and they'd rather just be in relationship with that beneficiary. Yes, and and being a co-trustee could really help there. So you could still have the family member as one trustee and then have a what we would call a corporate trustee, a professional trustee to work with that family member and alleviate some of the burdens. A uh, quick example we had whereas again a uh, family member became a trustee, uh, one of the other family members wanted a distribution for a wedding, which was allowed by the trust document, but they felt very uncomfortable, like, how, well, how much can we give her? What should we do? And what happened was we, as CI Private Trust Company, became the discretionary trustee. So when there was a discretionary distribution, and that's where this uh, wedding amount was coming from, uh, we made that decision. And so the family member didn't make that decision. So this was important to them because it kept family harmony. No one was going to look at the uncle and say, hey, you didn't give me enough for my wedding. It wasn't even in his purview to make that amount up. So it was up to us to write the check for $30,000 for that, for that wedding. So it was our determination as the discretionary trustee. So again, how, making sure the family is staying all in love as opposed to fighting over money because that's not what the point of this whole trust was. Yeah, just an exa- another example. I've seen situations where the, the child, the beneficiary of a trust, um, wants to purchase that home. They want to spend uh, a million and a half dollars on, on a residence, but their current income, their, their lifestyle doesn't really, doesn't really support a property worth a million and a half dollars. And it's hard for a family member to say no. It's a more, I think, a more appropriate relationship for that corporate or that 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 third party to, to be able to say no for for the right reason can a trustee be changed by the by the grantor the beneficiaries once the once the trust has been established that's a great question peter hopefully there's been provisions put into a trust document on how a trustee can be removed and replaced or what is the lineage because a certain person could be named trustee now and so what if that person is incapable of providing that service, doesn't want to continue to do that service, dies, et cetera? Uh, how does a trustee get replaced? So normally that is hopefully addressed in a trust document. 
normally it would be in the trust document. So it would be normally be hard for a beneficiary to remove a trustee. Normally they're not given that kind of power uh, inside a trust document. So uh, the grantor would set up the current trustee and then uh, what are the powers to remove, replace current trustee. One way a, a lot of our advisors who use trust set up a trust that they'll uh, potentially name a, a, let's say their brother as trustee, but then they will name SEI private trust company as a future appointment. And then they have in their language as to when we would step in as trustee. So the brother's doing it for a while. Let's say the brother doesn't want to do it anymore. It comes incapacitated or dies. Then uh, the trust document says then SEI private trust company would step in. So that's how a document should be written, something in that vein. Uh, but normally there are provisions on how a trustee can be uh, replaced, removed, et cetera. Dean, mm -hmm. there's no, no doubt about that the trust can, can complicate the estate planning process, at least establishing them and then maintain, maintaining them. What, what should a, someone who's establishing the, these trusts kind of expect for the legal fees to, to, to actually draft the trust? Uh, what should they expect from a tax and accounting perspective? And how about the trustee, especially if it's a professional and a, an attorney, an accountant, corporate trustee like SEA private trust company? Sure. Well, let's, let's talk about setting up a trust. And of course, that is going to be a legal document. And depending on the complexity of that document and depending on where you are in the United States, the prices can range uh, quite dramatically. Uh, a simple will, or simple trust document could be $1,000, where one that's more complicated be uh, $5,000, maybe a, considerably more than that. So it's not a bad idea to check into working with someone who does this type of law, trust and estate law, and, and get an idea of what their, what their charges are. Now, once the trust is established and you've paid that cost in setting up a document, then there can be trust tax filings. and they're usually done yearly. Uh, in, in some states, uh, things there might be some state accounting that has to be done as well. But the annual trust tax filings, probably, again, depending on where you are, could be $800 to double that, $1,600. Again, again, the type of trust, the complexity of the trust can come into play. As far as uh, what a, a trustee can charge for being trustee, some some of that some of that could be uh, mandated by the trust document, potentially by a state law, and there also could be other charges. For instance, the trustee might uh, set up the, the grantor sets up this trust and say we're going to pay the trustee um, three thousand dollars a year to be trustee. Okay, well then there's a portfolio to be managed. So now there's other people involved. So financial advisor who's interfacing with the beneficiaries, potentially if the grantor is still alive with the trustee, working with the, the money managers or the investment house that the trust that the financial advisor is working with. So there's going to be a financial advisor cost there. There could be an investment cost of you know, what investments are we investing in. So there are, are various costs that need to be considered and ongoing. Now, just to give you an idea at, at SCI, private trust company, the most popular type of trust in the, in the United States is known as a discretionary trust. And what that means is that if we're the trustee 
that we have full fiduciary power on this trust, not only from an administrative standpoint, but also uh, the investments. Keep in mind, we always work with an advisor. So we need a local representative some in the United States. But if it's over a million dollars of investable assets, there is actually no trust administration cost for this. Zero. And that also includes the tax return prep and issuance of any K-1s. Now, if it's below a million, there's a annual charge minimum of 2,500. And when you're shopping around for trust companies, the cost can dramatically vary. Some may have a minimum of $5,000, $7,000. Some may charge un- assets under management with a minimum fee. So as the trust assets go up in value, so does the cost for them to be trustee. So it, it is important to shop around to see or, and compare trust costs. They're all going to essentially do the basic services. But for instance, I mentioned that we include the tax return prep. Not every trust company puts that as part of their minimum cost. They'll say, oh, you want trust? You want us to do the taxes? Well, that's an extra 2000 a year. So some services would be a la carte and some services would be included. In our case, it's, it's an inclusive fee. You get one number and it's done. So trust costs can vary dramatically uh, across the nation. And the best thing to do is to compare two or three trust companies as to what their services are, what the charges are, make the decision based on not only on the cost, but what kind of services they're providing, their experience. Do they get an individual trust officer to work with? Are they just dialing into an 800 number? Service models can dramatically be different out there. Uh, It's important that whoever you select as trustee, that you have a, have a good, feel like you would have a good uh, working relationship. And in our case, we always work with a financial advisor such as you, Peter. Dean and Peter, this has been fantastic. Unfortunately, we are really low on time. There is just so much information here to unpack. I felt like I was drinking from a fire hose. So <laughs> I, I appreciate all the info. Dean, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Peter, what should listeners do if they think that an estate and trust planning something like that might be appropriate for them. Eric, as usual, when I'm doing my podcast, I, I talk about the advantages of having a comprehensive financial plan mm-hmm. uh, completed so that that the client understands and, and knows that they and their family are on that right path. And so w- what we do is we'll, we'll make sure that that is the case. And then they need to work with an estate planning attorney, uh, really a specialist. Mm-hmm. This is not something you can or should, I believe, uh, go on to uh, onto the internet and and search and and buy a trust online. Yeah. It, it, it can be really complicated. You definitely need a specialist to, to structure it appropriately. And and if the trust is appropriate, it's it, it's that part of that discussion is deciding who the trustees are. Uh, I, I believe having a corporate or professional trustee is is really important and really and should be considered by everyone. And SEI private trust company does a, a great job. If you would like a referral to uh, talk to someone at SEI Trust Company, certainly give me a call at, directly and I can make that contact. Uh, my number is 617-728-7433 or visit my website at raskinplanning.com and listen to uh, to, to other podcasts and, and find out wh- uh, how we might be able to be of service. That's what I would recommend. Great. Fantastic. Thank you, Peter. Dean, you know your stuff, brother. That was, uh, it was good. Thank you so much for being here. My pleasure. Glad to help out. You Dean, bet. thanks a lot. Really appreciate it. 
You got it, Peter. And thank you all for listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast with Peter Raskin. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when Peter comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. This makes it much easier to share these podcasts with your friends and family. Again, thanks so much for listening today. For everyone at Raskin Planning Group, this is Eric Johnson reminding you to live your best day every day. And we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Wealth is in the Details podcast. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Peter Raskin is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Securities offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker, dealer, member SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Sagemark Consulting, a division of Lincoln Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other fine companies. Raskin Planning Group is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances. Peter Raskin is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Securities offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker, dealer, member SIPC. Investment advisory services offered through Sagemark Consulting, a division of Lincoln Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Affiliates and other fine companies. Raskin Planning Group is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.